And he must have a firm grasp of the unchanging message so that he can be counted on both for giving encouragement in sound doctrine and for refuting those who argue against it. WSFI 88.5 FM presents Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. Good morning. Today we're going to talk about Reclamation Theology. And so it's always good to define terms because words mean things. We find ourselves in a howling wasteland of relativism and modernism that is devoid of the landmarks of virtue and the true faith. So what we're going to talk about in this series of programs is reclamation theology. Reclamation theology is the reclaiming of our theology and our faith pre-Reformation. We will refer to that event as the deformation. Because in that, prior to that apostasy, prior to that movement that brought about Protestantism and the, the fracturing of the church, prior to that movement, we proclaimed our faith. We proclaimed our faith without apology, without defense. After that, our writers and our theologians began to defend the faith. When we proclaimed the faith, we had a much clearer understanding of some very operative principles and a much clearer understanding of our faith. I would propose that political correctness started when we began to couch our responses to an opposing voice. I will point out that the first ecumenical theological dialogue took place between Eve and the serpent, and it has not gone well for us since. When we proclaim the truth, without apology, clearly and directly. That is about the conversion of souls. We see that moved all the way forward into the current time when we've lost sight of Christ's great commission, which is to go into all the world, to baptize, to convert, to bring them to him. It's about souls. It's not about plastic in the ocean. It's about souls. It's not about politics. And to be very clear, one of the key themes of reclamation theology, in the same way that the deformation, focuses on the shortcomings and defects of the clergy. Churchmen, I'm speaking directly to you. Political motivation has no place in the salvation of souls. And so if you're politically motivated, please step aside. You've lost your credibility as a group. The USCCB has lost its credibility as a body. Individual bishops have credibility and integrity on an individual basis based upon their census fidelium, based upon their fidelity to the true faith and to Catholic teaching based upon the words of our Lord, not how someone decides to interpret what our Lord said. There is very basic theology that has been lost. And we will start with the first commandment. We will start with some very simple precepts and understand that as a body, fathers, bishops, cardinals, you have lost your credibility. It's not about reclaiming the credibility. It's about healing a wound in the mystical body of Christ and removing the contagion, that which militates against that healing, which may be you yourself. It certainly is, uh, it calls for a reorganization 
of any of these, quote, governing bodies. This is about souls and about the salvations of souls. It's not about liturgical reform. It's not about any of these things. We have to return to the core mission that Christ gave us as a church. We as the laity will speak. You will have to deal with us because you have led us into moral and doctrinal error. And our obligation to speak is now engaged. So where you have led us into moral and doctrinal error, we will not follow you any longer into these errors. We must stand at the edge of this preposis and say, no more. Return to the true faith. Return, reclaim our theology. Our theology is based very simply on two things. One is the first commandment. The second is the mysterium fidei. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. It is a call to prayer. It is a call to penance. It is a call to be the church militant, not the church reticent, not the church reflecting, not the church reclining, the church militant. So with that, let's talk about one of the things that we've given up or we've lost in the 500 years since the deformation, and that is the operative understanding of grace. St. Thomas tells us that grace perfects nature. Often misquoted as grace builds upon nature. Grace does not need nature. Grace perfects nature. So there's three words there, grace, perfection, and nature. Our nature as humans is a fallen nature as a result of original sin. This is a Catholic concept that is part of our doctrine, is part of our dogma is there is concupiscence. There is a predilection or a natural, because of the fall, there is now a fallen nature that inclines us toward evil or away from God. Because we were once seduced, we are seducible. And so grace, actual grace, is God's beckoning to us. Jesus himself talks about this point in the Gospel of John, when he says, no one comes to the Father unless the Father beckons. This beckoning is grace. Grace allows us to hear God. It is God speaking to us. It is the movement between creature and creator. Sanctifying grace comes and builds upon top of actual grace. So we see that there's no room for the concept in this that man is inherently good. He is not. He was created good, but because of the fall and concupiscence, is inclined toward evil. And so he needs grace in order to be aware of God. Once this awareness starts, then there's a communication. I have with me Dan Schneider, who is a theologian specializing in Marianology. And I want to speak with Dan and, and open a conversation with Dan because the epitome of grace is the Blessed Mother. He is a Marianologist, a specialist on Mary. And so let's see how Dan educates us and, and opens and illumines our minds to the real meaning of the term gratia plena, full of grace. This is a most amazing statement made by an angelic being to a human at the moment of the Annunciation, leading straight up to it. And in this dialogue, we get some very definitive answers on what grace is and what it is not. And you also get some insight as to why Martin Luther and the Protestants sought to diminish greatly 
the role of Our Lady in grace, in sanctifying grace, and in the perfection of nature. Good morning, Dan. Morning, Kyle. Yeah, we're talking about grace. It's good to begin with a quick definition of grace. An easy, practical definition is grace is divine life or God's life in us. So when we look at Scripture, I'm looking at a parallel Bible here of Luke 1.28. And these are all Protestant versions of the Bible. It says, Hail that are highly favored. Greetings, favored one. You who are favored by the Lord, the Lord is with you. This is a, a far cry away from the original language. St. Jerome got it the closest. What I like about the Vulgate Bible and St. Jerome, Doctor of the Church, is how how precise the Latin he was able to use. He was he was the first uber-literalist to take through through this uh, salut, angelic salutation of Our Lady, the Ave Gratia Plena. But the Greek is even even more specific for kekeritomene, the word charis, where we get the word for grace, where we get the grace, gift, favor. So if you diminish and minimalize that, you're going to end up with this phrase that says favored one, favored daughter, etc. But again, that's a very minimalist interpretation. When you actually take this phrase, and it's in the perfect, this is a little geeky, but it's worth hearing. The perfect passive participle of the word where we get ave gratia plena, kekeritomene, the Greek structure implies a perfection and ongoing condition. So, so what the angel greets her with is, Hail, you who have been favored, it's a, pa- it's a past perfect, have been favored with every grace. And this favoring continues in an ongoing and future condition. So this is almost akin to a title. This is almost akin to you are rock, but it goes even deeper. The angel has revealed to humanity through this one word, the essence of, of our Blessed Mother, she who has been filled with every grace in the past, that is a present and ongoing condition. So Jerome says, Ave Gratia Plena, hail full of grace. So she is filled with every single grace. So she is the perfection of grace. She is the perfection of all things good. She has a perfection. We talk about the disordering of the human faculties, the human person through the fall. Our Lady now comes as the perfection of humanity. So she is not only the model, she will become for us the mold by which souls are going to be reformed. So as we look at the disordering of humanity through the fall, we see through this perfection, hail you who have been filled with every grace. We're going to see in her the perfect ordering and the perfect human. So in the perfect God's perfect creature to come. And so and so from that develops two different ways of looking at at the Blessed Mother. One is the new Eve. In Luke's gospel, we're going to see her being presented as the Ark of the Covenant. And when Elizabeth greets Our Lady, it's actually, it could be read, she intoned. It's the same word as liturgical presentation. And so she is the perfection of nature. So we hold her up as, as the icon of human perfection. And then we go into the disordering. And we see her as the new Eve as we see what happens to the old Eve. God prepares the new, the new covenant through, through this one person. That's going to, the grace is going to flow through her. She who is perfected in grace, grace now is going to flow from heaven to humanity through her. Dan, it's a wonderful insight. So what I'm hearing you say is when the angel speaks to her and says, Hail, full of grace. Please correct if I've got this wrong, but he's actually saying, Hail you through whom all grace will flow because it has flowed into you. Now it will flow out from you. And so we're seeing in Mary, in this greeting, a repository of all grace. Is that accurate? Absolutely, because it, it gets reinforced later. Finally, in the, in the narrative says, let it be done to me. What's interesting about that particular phrase is, one, there's parallelisms with creation. 
where God says, let there be, let there be. So there, there is an echo from creation in these words that this new creation is going to come about. But again, there's another interesting construction there in the Greek language. There's a mood in Greek that's largely lost by the time it gets to the New Testament. It's called the optative mood. And you hear the word optative where we get the word hope or it's an anticipation. If you're from Minnesota and it's the beginning of the NFL season and someone says, are oh, the Vikings going to win the Super Bowl this year? They're going to say, you betcha. It's a hope-filled anticipation from Viking fans that they're going to win the Super Bowl. So, too, you see this in the optative mood and by Luke's usage. When you, Luke slips into Athenian Greek for this phrase, it's theologically packed. When she says, let this be done, she is saying, "There will not only do I hope this will be done, there is a willing collusion with the bringing about the word that the angel gave to her, that she will willingly hope-filled infusion and willing collusion with the word of the angel and bringing about this new creation, this salvific moment in, in human history. It's very poignant because it's to what we order our life. What you will find is there's several dividing points. The angel's division, which led to the fall of the angels and the glorification of those who assented to God's will, is predicated upon their reaction to the incarnation, their reaction, in fact, to this very moment. God would become man, that he would condescend, that he would take human form, but he would even come through this woman. What you see is over and over again in cases of possession and where the demonic is, is moving in and among us, one of the things they find compatible is a defect in Marian dogma or a failure to understand exactly who she is or even a dislike or disrespect for the Blessed Mother. When they find that soul who has that disposition, they are now simpatico. They have now found something that they agree on. And so their fallen natures conspire. And so this gives us an insight into the demonic and to actually what is going on with regard to she who is queen of angels. She who is raised by her merit to the highest place in all of creation. It's interesting to notice and to note the reaction of churchmen, of clergy, and even of laity to the Blessed Mother. One cannot be ambivalent about her. One can either adore, venerate, be in a state of awe with response to her, or one will be turned away. For those who have Marian devotion and have had it for a long time, it's almost inconceivable that someone would be repulsed by or turned back from Mary. Very interesting. One of the reasons that cradle Catholics have this ongoing relationship with Mary from early on is what happens when you baptize an infant? You immediately take this infant in the church from the font to the Marian niche and you consecrate this child to the Blessed Mother for her protection, for her intercession, making the Blessed Mother present and giving the Blessed Mother access to this soul from the moment of baptism. So the soul is configured to Christ and his mother same day in a sequence, in a sequence of importance, first to the Christ and his church, ultimately to God the Father and to put them under the protection of the Blessed Mother. This is very significant. We now have in the ranks of the episcopacy, in the priesthood, we now have ranks of those who came into the church as adults, who came in with Protestant understanding and Protestant formation, and no Marian relationship. 
I think it was under Pope Benedict, there was a, they looked at, I forget the document, but they were looking at the seminary system and what they found was that the two, two large lacunae in the, in the curricula of, the, of our seminaries in the U.S. And one is in, in Mariology, the second is sacred scripture. So those are, those are two areas of deficiency. And what we lose is our, a right balance and understanding. Let's go back to something you said earlier about proper cults or proper, proper honor of Mary. The theologians are going to distinguish between dulia and latria. Latria is, is true worship, work to God alone. Dulia is honor due to man, right honor due to man, due to some human excellence. A medal of honor winner walks in, the president salutes him, uh, the, the governor walks in the room, he has a human excellence, we stand and honor him. The Virgin Mary, by her special privileges, deserves what, the, what, what would be called hyperdulia. It's more than just a human excellence. It's not worship due to God alone. It's not, it's not latria. But it's not just—it's not just a human respect we offer her. She's not just the instrument. She's not just a, a model for us. For she is a model of saying yes to God. She's a model. That's the best we get. Mary's a model, and she—and then maybe she intercedes for us. No, she is point and center. What the, the scholastic theologians say—the neck of the mystical body. So through her flows avenue of grace. So if you can include God's word through sacred scripture, and you can include our understanding, right understanding of her role in the mystical body, the distribution of graces. Then you can include among theologians and among among seminarians. You can you can block effectively two areas, the two areas of grace in the lives of people. Beautiful insight. I, I think it leads us to a point which may seem like a departure. However, it's it, it's not a departure as much as it is a different perspective. This show is being recorded on September the 11th. There is a great Marian significance here. September 11th, 1683, the scene is Vienna. The Turkish army, under a leader named, you can't make this stuff up, the leader's name was Mustafa. He is, for those of you who are movie or Disney aficionados, you'll recognize that name from The Lion King. So Mustafa and some 300,000 Turkish troops had come and laid siege to Vienna starting in late July. And Vienna, they had tunneled under the walls, they had compromised the integrity of the city, and Europe was about to fall. Now, why was Mustafa there? He was there at the invitation of a former Catholic. He was there at the invitation of a Hungarian Calvinist who was waging war against the church. Why would a Hungarian Calvinist and a Muslim be in league because they had a common enemy, which was the Catholic Church. So the two of them are, these two groups are laying siege. Pope Innocent XI commissions or calls out to John III Sebeski of Poland, a son of Mary, of great Marian devotion. And Pope Innocent speaks among the language of Marian devotees to say, Please come to the aid of the Blessed Mother in the defense of the church. This is a plea that John cannot ignore. So John, the Polish king, brings his troops, some 70,000. They arrive on September the 11th to assist the Habsburgs, led by Leopold, in the defense of Vienna. Ultimately, all of Europe, all of Christendom is under threat. And so with our ladies intercession, protection. As the Polish army, 70,000 strong, descends the slopes above Vienna, 
the Turks are frightened. The Muslims leave. And reminiscent of the siege of Sinasharib against Hezaika, they flee in the night. They flee in the night of September the 11th, leaving very few to be routed on the 12th of September. Tomorrow we celebrate the holy name of Mary. This is in the divine praises. Blessed be the, the name of Mary, virgin and mother. Who she is and what she is throughout history has been diminished by those who would write revisionist history. We honor her on September the 12th. That feast has largely been ignored. We're coming upon the nativity of Mary, Our Lady of Sorrows. We're, we are in a very poignant time in our liturgical calendar, especially the pre-55 calendar when the liturgy fell under the attack of the relativist and modernist led by Freemasonic clergymen. Let's call this what it is. Where there is a departure, where there's a fork in the road, where we are lost and we find ourselves lost, we must return and say, here's where we departed the true faith. Here's where we departed the true, true practice. There is no coincidence that the Muslims chose 9-11 to destroy the towers in America. This is a spiritual war. This is a religious war that has never ended since Hagar left in hatred, since Hagar left the house of Abraham in hatred with her son Ishmael. This goes back to that departure. So we must look at and never forget where we are. I think going back to you're talking about the Battle of Vienna, we see historically something that took place that carries into uh, the spiritual life, if you want to look at it that way. So Sobieski in the Polish army begins at a Polish shrine, and they go largely, greatly, 10 to 1 outnumbered. Um, and after the battle, um, he, he paraphrases Caesar and says, I came, I saw God conquered. By beginning with right devotion to the Virgin Mary, we end up with right relation with God. So Marian devotion is extremely important. And I would encourage anyone uh, listening to really look at their own spiritual life because take seriously the, the writings of the saints, particularly uh, St. Louis de Montfort and Alphonsus Liguori, modern saints like Maximilian Kolbe, saints who dedicated their lives to her because the battle, the spiritual battle that's taking place was prefigured in Genesis and that battle continues as we see in Revelation. So those who conform rightly to her are going to be well equipped to handle this battle. She's not just the model of model of Christian. She's the mold. She's she's the saint maker. She's the one that helps us get in right relation with God. And she, she cleans us up. She does her things as, as a mother does, as John Paul says in Redemptoris Mater 21, that she she comes to us in a wide variety of our wants and needs. And and that wide variety of wants and needs is everything from small little matters on a very human level, but also very great matters. She gets us in right right relation with God. Reclamation theology is about getting in right relationship with God the Father. And so what's unique about the Virgin Mary as God's perfect creature, as God's perfect created one, she stands in unique in unique relationship to the Blessed Trinity. St. Paul's one mention, one mention of Our Lady in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born of the law, so that those under the law might be ransomed and cry out in the Spirit of a Father. So we see her in unique relationship to the Blessed Trinity. She's daughter to the Father. 
by her example and by her prayer, she prepares and presents us to God the Father. This is the model of motherhood. Let's look at the modern corruption of motherhood, which is to place the child in elevation over the father and to denigrate or disrespect the father to the child. Do you see the, the, the great inversion there? Because Mary prepares us to meet the father. She purifies in us the image of the father. Where modern motherhood and feminism denigrates or deforms the image of the father to the adoration or elevation of the child. And so this is a disordering of spousal union. This is a disordering of relationship with God. Yeah, so she's as daughter to the father, mother to the son, and spouse of the Holy Spirit. She, she has this unique relationship to the Holy Trinity. I was reading something this morning on Athanasius, some excerpt from the Song of Songs, and he had a phrase that really struck me. He talked about a nuptial submission to Christ, speaking to monks in particular. But we all, as Christians, should have this nuptial submission that she had. We see in the wedding feast of Canaan, for example, we see her presented as bride. And so she has this perfect nuptial submission to Christ the head. The nuptial submission, I think, is, is really, really key here, especially with the prevalence of, of homosexuality and deviation from the moral law and the natural order. What nuptial submission, what spousal sacrifice is, is placing your sexuality, your desires, every bit of you at the disposal of someone else to do with what they will, based upon your obligation to keep in chastity and in purity that sexuality, that disposition. There is almost a throwaway line in the Stations of the Cross that we do at Lent that just quickens, it just quicks me to the core. And it is St. Alphonsus Liguori, and he says, he intones the words, love me, and then do with me what you will. What powerful words, do with me what you will. This gives absolute gift of self and the total disposition. That is, the, that is spousal sacrifice that we've lost. Because now it, our vocation of marriage, our priesthood, our the priesthood, all of these vocations, all of these configurations to God are now done on our terms, not on his terms. This is a deviation. This is a deviation from natural law, from moral law, from ecclesial law, and we have all participated in it. And to the extent we've participated in it, we've lost the ability to tell clean from unclean. Our own agenda has supplanted Christ's agenda. Christ's agenda is the salvation of souls. Our own is self-aggrandizement, politics, adoration of men to the, to the ignoring of the adoration or the acknowledgement of the Creator. We, at the end of the day, we are either ad orientum or we're ad hominem. We're either seeking the Creator or we're seeking the creature. And so it is really that black and white. This gives us the clear view of reclamation theology. Am I moving toward God? Am I moving toward God to the exclusion of all else? Am I leading others to God? We certainly appreciate your listening to this inaugural program of Reclamation Theology. We appreciate WSFI in Chicago for taking this risk, for stepping out in faith and sponsoring this program on Reclamation Theology. I would like to also mention the, the Liber Cristo movement, which is a reform and a return of the deliverance and exorcism ministry to Catholic norms, which places at the center of this movement the return to the sacraments, 
The definition of healing is reconciliation with God the Father through Christ the Son and His sacraments. I thank you. I encourage you to pray for the purification and sanctification of the church and the conversion of churchmen everywhere. May God bless you. You have been listening to WSFI 88.5 FM, Reclamation Theology. A copy of this broadcast will be made available at wsficatholicradio.org. Salve Regina, Mata Misericordiae, Pizza Dulcedo, Et Spes Nostra Salve, A Te Clamamus, Exules Filiebe, A Te Suspiramus, Gementes et Flentes, in hoc lacrimarum vale. Ea ergo, advocata nostra, illus tuos misericordes oculos ad nos convete. Et Iesu, benedictum fructum ventris tui, Nobis postoc exilium ostende. O clemens, O pia, O ducis, Virgo Maria.